Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, you will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We're near the end of chapter 7, picking up with verse 26 after a little review. Remember that these Hebrew Christians were a little wobbly in their faith. They were beginning to look back fondly at the Jewish traditions that they had left. They did not have a firm grip upon the magnitude of the person of Jesus Christ and all the advantages and superiority that they had in him, and they did not understand that the old covenant with its ritual system and all of that was now obsolete. Those were shadows. The substance had come in Jesus Christ. The author has been showing most recently that they have in Jesus Christ a high priest one who is vastly superior to any priesthood that the Jews had under the Old Covenant. He's not after the order of Aaron, but he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a figure who appeared in Genesis chapter 14. He was one that made Abraham when Abraham returned from the battle and the conquest of the eastern kings, and he paid tithes to Melchizedek. His point is, that this is a priesthood of a vastly superior order, an enduring priesthood. The priests of the Aaronic order were not such. So, our author shows that in the plan and purpose of God, such a high priest was exactly what suited the requirements for our redemption. In verse 26 of chapter 7, for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, a high priest like Jesus Christ, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not one after the order of Aaron, that we should have such a high priest, one holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, that was certainly not the high priest after the order of Aaron. It was fitting that we should have one who does not need daily, like those high priests of the Levitical order, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, Because this he, Jesus Christ, did once for all, for all of us, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests, who are weak, that is, they're merely fleshly, human. But the word of the oath, which he had quoted earlier from the Old Testament, which came after the law, appoints a son, not a son of Levi, but a son of God, made perfect forever. You do not want to give up this ground. Our redemption from sin, 
that attends as a consequence our involvement in transgression against God, it requires a mediator, a mediator before God, and no less than that. Our redemption requires no less a high priest who can enter into the very presence of God in heaven on our behalf, not one who does it merely symbolically. It requires a high priest no less than one who can bring a once-for-all offering that will avail to atone for our sins, and that Jesus Christ did when he laid down his life on the cross for us and became sin for us as our substitute. He is our high priest, and he is our offering, all in one. In fact, he made an offering for the sins of all who call upon him, not only Jews, but Gentiles. His offering is a sacrifice no less than himself, not the blood of a bull or goat. He is one who is supremely a lamb without spot or blemish, and he is one whose very person is holy, transcendent, exalted above the heavens, He is a high priest of infinite value. However, the old covenant, that system of worship our writer is getting across, is now obsolete. It was not wrong in its time. It was a shadow, an instructive system. It was symbolic. It pointed to the substance. Now the substance is common. That is Jesus Christ. So you don't want to turn back to something obsolete. It'd be like going from a car to a horse and buggy. You don't want to turn your backs on Christ, for nothing in that system offers to you such a holy, exalted, ever-living, and all-sufficient mediator. For remember, he says in verse 28, the law of Moses appoints men to serve as high priests, who, unlike the ever-living Christ, are weak, that is, they too are sinful, they are earthbound mortals, and they eventually pass away, and they have to make sacrifices for their own sins, symbolically as well as those for whom they mediate. But the mediator that you and I have in Jesus Christ is far superior to the priestly function of the Old Covenant. For the word of the oath God sworn to his Son, which came after, post-dated, the introduction of the law through Moses, that word, that oath, anticipates a change of priesthood, and it appoints a Son, the Son of God, made perfect in every way to serve forever as our heavenly mediator in the very presence of God, not some weak, earthly mortal entangled in the same sins we are, who can offer up no sacrifice that can really take away our sins. That brings us to chapter 8. Lest we get lost in the heavy traffic of his argument for the preeminence of the high priestly office of our Lord Jesus Christ, over the mediatorial ministry of the high priest of the Levitical order under the Old Covenant. The author now summarizes the chief thrust of what he has said thus far on the subject. Verse 1. Now the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest or a mediator with God who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In short, our author is saying, by way of summary, let's get a grip here, brethren. What are you thinking as you contemplate retreat? No high priest on earth can be more exalted or be closer nor more intimate with God in heaven than this. Aaron and his merely mortal descendants do not compare in eminence or in effectiveness with this great high priest who has appeared for us in heaven itself. 
For in Christ, verse 2, we believers have as a mediator in the very presence of God, one who is a minister in our behalf in the sanctuary of heaven itself, and in the true, that is, the real, not earthbound symbolic sanctuary constructed by men. But we have one in the true sanctuary, which the Lord, God himself, pitched in heaven, not man. To approach the holy, living God, human beings require a mediator, one who can make intercession on our behalf, one who must bring an atoning offering in hand for our sins. Well, sinful human beings cannot at will just storm the throne of God in all of our defilement and find acceptance. First, we must find atonement, and an acceptable mediator must be found to offer to God that atonement to appease his holy wrath against sin. That's the office work of a high priest, to mediate between God and man. But the high priest of the Aaronic order could only do it symbolically. It was only a shadow. It pointed to the greater high priest and the greater offering that would come in Jesus Christ. Now, you know, many people have no clue about this notion of a mediator, but the ancient Jews did. The Jews knew man needs a mediator to stand between them and a holy God. And they knew both the mediator and his offering had to be acceptable to God in order to render us accepted to him. What they failed to understand is that Aaron who was descended from Levi, Aaron and the Levitical priest and their sacrifices, they did not understand that they could not discharge us from the guilt of sin except ceremonially. They were just types, and their offerings were just symbols. They were just types of the real mediator and the real offering that was to come. I say again, those who were forgiven in the Old Testament were not forgiven based upon the mediation of the old priesthood. And they were not forgiven on the basis of those sacrifices of bulls and goats. They were forgiven just as we are, with a nuance. They were forgiven by anticipation, forgiven on the basis of Christ's self-sacrifice and his mediation before God in times to come. The Roman Catholic mistake is that instead of depending upon Christ alone as their mediator, they depend, like ancient Jews, upon a succession of mortal priests for that office work, priests whom they believe offer up again and again the blood of Christ in the Eucharist, and believe if they were cut off from those priestly offices in that sacrament, they would be cut off from grace. That's heresy. What our author is teaching here in Hebrews ought to be the cure for that error. But at least they did understand this. A human being cannot approach God and be acceptable to him without the office work of a mediator. And that, by the way, is another reason why there are not many roads to God. Because, as the Apostle Paul said, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Now in verse 3 of chapter 8, our author explains in his own words, some of the things that I've just said. For every high priest is appointed by God to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest, namely Christ himself, also have something to offer, something to offer that would render those for whom the high priest intercedes acceptable and put them in a right or a justified relationship to God. So in verse 4, he hastens to add that 
If Christ were on earth now, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law. Obviously, when he wrote, this author wrote, the temple was not yet destroyed, as it was in 70 A.D. The institutions of Judaism or the Mosaic Law were still up and running, as he wrote. Though post-crucifixion and post-resurrection, they were not yet terminated by disaster. But as long as they were in place, those operating under the terms of the Old Covenant were obliged to acknowledge the Levitical order as the only certified earthly priesthood. Christ, however, is not on earth. Christ has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And that's the true tabernacle of God's presence where he mediates for us. That's big. These mortal, earthly priests of the tribe of Levi, he says in verse 5, legitimate as they were, for what they were, as long as they were, and that would end absolutely in 70 A.D., they only serve, he says, verse 5, as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. They were almost like mimes, imitating in types and symbols the reality of heaven itself. So our author's point is they're not to be despised by any means. Their service and the earthly tabernacle was ordained by God in its time for teaching purposes. You can see how serious that purpose was in the mind of God. Just as Moses was warned by God when he came about to erect the temple, Moses was warned not to deviate from the blueprint one iota. Every piece played its part in symbolizing or reflecting some aspect of the heavenly reality. See, God says to Moses, Don't you ad-lib, but you make all things, meaning respecting the tabernacle you are to pitch in the midst of the camp of Israel, make it according to the pattern or the template which was shown you on the mountain where God appeared to Moses. So again, it's not as if the author seems to say the earthly priesthood and the tabernacle in the wilderness or its replacement under Solomon, the temple in Jerusalem, it's not that they were disapproved by God, not at all. They had their purpose, they had their time, but that time and purpose he's emphasizing is now past. It has now been replaced by a better and true high priest to which it all pointed in types and shadows. So he explains in verse 6, But now he, Christ, he has obtained a more excellent, a superior, that's an understatement, priestly ministry, than that exercised by the Levitical priest on earth, of whom Aaron was a descendant. How much superior? This much. By as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises than the old. Let me explain. The measure of the superiority of Christ's priestly ministry in our behalf is the comparative superiority of the promises of the new covenant to the promises of the old. There's your benchmark, he says. There's a new game in town. It's called the New Covenant, and it's grounded upon better and more secure promises than the Old. Under the Old Covenant, nothing was secure, because the law can tell us what is right, but under the law, no man is empowered to do what is right. The flaw or the weakness in the legal system was a power shortage. That's the point of Romans 7. The man under the law lacked a new heart responsive to God. The man under the law therefore came up short of attaining the promises attached to the old covenant. The new covenant, as we are about to see, rectifies that deficiency. 
That was not that God made a mistake, but under the law God made a point. And the point was that the whole world, even the Jews, under the most advantaged religious conditions, the whole world was profoundly fallen, sinful, broken, weak, and helpless. And the whole world was in need of redemption. And that redemption is not on the basis of works of any kind, not on the basis of merit or human performance, but on the basis of divine grace. By grace we are saved through faith alone. Now he explains in verse 7 of chapter 8, If that first covenant, the old covenant, if it had been faultless, that is, if it had been a sufficient means for effecting the salvation of lost mankind, there would obviously have been no occasion sought or reason in the purposes of God for the establishment of a second covenant. That makes sense. In other words, God would not have introduced arbitrarily what we call the new covenant, the covenant of grace, had the first covenant, the covenant of works, the law been able to bring us perfected into the presence of God. That is totally acceptable to him. Didn't happen to be the case, as he says in 8.8. Finding fault with them, meaning the arrangements of the old covenant, God says, and here he cites Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, Finding fault does not mean God belatedly discovered a flaw in the law that took God by surprise and forced him to say, Oop, I've got to rig up an alternative plan. No, God knew from the get-go that the flaw in the old covenant was not in the law per se. The law was holy, just, and good, Romans 7:13. The tripwire was the fallen, unregenerate heart of the natural man. The law could tell us, do this and live. But the promise of life was in every case nullified by the fact that sinful human beings, with their unregenerate hearts, could not subject themselves to the law of God. That's because we were morally unable to do so, Romans 8. The fact is, those who are in the flesh, that is, in their natural, unregenerate state, cannot please God, for they are incapable of doing what is right in His sight. Even if they could conform to the external requirements of the law of God, they cannot do it for the right reasons. That is, they cannot fulfill the law inwardly. The prophet Jeremiah, through the Holy Spirit, as did Ezekiel, around six centuries before the advent of Christ, foretold a day when God would dismantle the old covenant and would institute a new and far better and more secure one in terms of promises. So the author wants his readers not to go to sleep with the switch, but search the Scriptures, people. See for yourselves if this is not so. To go back to the Old Covenant after God himself has instituted a new covenant? Well, that would be nothing less than apostasy. That would be to rebel against God's plan. That would be to throw away your souls. Here's what the prophet wrote. 8.8 Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. The new covenant, as opposed to the old one, would be new and vastly improved. Our author is saying to his readers, Don't you remember those words of the prophet? It should not surprise you that God has done exactly what he announced to Jeremiah. Your fathers, verse 9, trashed that covenant from the outset. They made it null and void. You had no future on the basis of it, for they did not continue in my covenant, meaning they did not keep their part of the legal bargain, 
And in response, God said, I did not care for them. But at the end of the day, I rejected them and I laid them low in the wilderness. So the old covenant, understand, was a quid pro quo arrangement. They did not do what they promised to God, and God at the end of the day did not bestow upon the rebels, the unbelievers, his blessings that were contingent upon their fulfillment of their promises. Yes, he did for Israel, the nation, exactly as he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He preserved and multiplied their descendants. He gave them an inheritance in the land of Canaan. But the rebels among them who broke the covenant of God, God judged. Those who believed God and cast themselves upon his grace and mercy rather than upon their legal merit, God kept and blessed on the basis of grace. That's always been his way. So having announced in the Lord's behalf the eventual discarding of the old covenant, the prophet delineated in the Lord's words the new and radically improved new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and in fact with all the people of God everywhere is the idea. After those days, says the Lord, I'm interpolating some here for clarity, I will establish the new covenant that rectifies the fault line in the old, the fault line being the intractably sinful and rebellious heart. I will fix the problem, I will put my laws into their minds as opposed to inscribing them into tablets of stone. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In other words, his law will not just command them from the outside, but under the new covenant, God will make his law their moral imperative. On the inside, God's people will no longer just have tablets of stone telling them what and what not to do, but their obedience to God will be instinctual. It will be their desire and their heartbeat because they'll have a new heart. This is the work of the Holy Spirit who resides in us believers. This is what it means to know God. It's to know and to love his way and to take pride like Jehoshaphat in the ways of the Lord. This truth is what John spoke of in his first epistle, chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know or know all things, because the law of God is inscribed in your very heart. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. But because you know it, that is, because the Spirit of God has imprinted upon your hearts and minds instinctively, under the terms and the conditions of the new covenant, the relationship between God and the covenant community is not conditional now. It's not stipulated on the basis of conformity to his law. We can never make it that way. Rather, this new covenant works by grace, not by law or by merit. And it works in such a way as to guarantee that those in the new covenant will be his people, not formally, but functionally from the heart, and he will unconditionally be their God. Wow. It gets better yet. Under the old covenant, the best one could do was try to create the knowledge of God from the outside in, an attempt to change perceptions of God and relations with God by sheer informational input. The trouble was there was no internal hook to hang all that information on. But now with the new covenant, God solves that critical problem by working from the inside out. He so fundamentally changes the mind, the heart of his new covenant people, so as to prevail upon them with the mantra, Know the Lord, know the Lord. That'll be carrying coals to Newcastle, as the saying goes, totally unnecessary. They shall not any longer teach everyone his fellow citizen and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for this simple reason. All my regenerate people with minds and hearts renewed by the Holy Spirit shall know me instinctively. 
not just the learned and the theologians, but from the least of them to the greatest. Thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you, and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure the word. Just be sure the word gets in the hand.